Hello, and welcome to the new and improved Third Time's a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third film in a franchise. I'm your host, Mike. Let's get right down to business. So, what's new and improved about Third Time's a Charm? For starters, no more seasons. Initially, the show was broken up into seasons, which would focus on separate genres of film. Season 1 was a mixed bag, a potpourri of big franchise stuff to get things started. Season 2 was sci-fi, season 3 horror, so forth and so on. In the interest of convenience, and just talking about movies I want to, when I want to, and not because of some idea that sounds cool in theory, but in practice was very confining, I've decided to abandon the whole season concept. From now on, no more seasons. Just season 1 forever. Hashtag season 1 forever. But wait, that's not all. I need to talk about book club for a moment. Hashtag book club. I love it, you love it. But while planning the show, I somehow made a rule of sorts that those movies with a book had priority, but they shouldn't just because of my love or addiction to reading crap. In the interest of releasing more episodes and covering more movies, I'm going to start having episodes without a book club. If you would like to suggest a segment for me to use on episodes without book club, write in to 3 at cageclub.me. T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. I still have quite a stack of garbage novelizations to read, but it just won't be part of every single episode moving forward. So for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's movie, Episode 7, Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome, from 1985, directed by the Georges Miller and Ogilvie. That's George Miller and George Ogilvie. I'm your host, Mad Mike. And get ready, folks, because dying time's here. Today, two guests enter, one guest leaves. Ooh, I don't know. We'll find out. But actually, you know what? Before I introduce them, I just want to say that these are two Third Times a Charm all-stars, both celebrating their third appearance on this show at the same time. Wow. Wow. So, in corner number one, we have... From Wistful Thinking, Kara Gail O'Regan. Welcome back. Good day. Thank you. Excited to be here. Kara was here previously on Jaws 3D and Jurassic Park with Tobin. Right. And she's back to traverse the wastelands of the apocalypse. And in corner number two. Ding, ding. Straight from a sleepover, I would imagine, if I know this guy nowadays. Staying up for you, Mike. Staying up for you. We have Brian Late Night Rodriguez. Welcome back. That's my apocalypse name, Late Night. I'm definitely going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of these apocalypse names, you'd be lucky to go with Late Night. There's guys called Bulb Man, Wrist Man, Collector, Tauntaun Tattoo. Well, that's actually kind of cool. <laughs> pig Killer. You could go by Pig Killer. I don't want to be Pig Killer. I don't want you to be either. I'd rather you be Late Night. <laughs> Fine, fair. I'll be late night. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Thanks for surviving the apocalypse with me. So we could talk about one of the craziest series in film history. All four of these movies are just supercharged to the max, pun intended, I guess. (laughs) And I'm really glad that you're both here to start talking about Thunderdome. 
So normally at the top of the show, I ask my guests their history with the franchise. So, I mean, why break with tradition? Starting with Kara, if you don't mind going first here into the ring, tell me a little bit about your history with the Mad Max franchise. Yeah, I uh, I thought I had seen these movies. And it turns out that I had just seen clips and my brain just mapped Waterworld onto everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. It turns out they really ripped off these movies. <laughs> Waterworld is trying to be Mad Max in the ocean, basically. Yeah, we just did it on Wistful Thinking, so I have a lot of fresh Waterworld information in my head. They actually use the same cinematographer, but the two people that wound up with their names on the script for Waterworld refused to acknowledge that they got any inspiration whatsoever from the Mad Max franchise, which I think is hilarious. That's crazy that they wanted to take full credit for that movie. Right? I mean, like, even if they hadn't ripped it off so much, it's still crazy that somebody would want to take full credit for that movie. So I just watched them for the first time, actually, and they were pretty good. I liked it. So you watched all three, all four? I watched the first three. I haven't gotten to number four yet. I'm like saving it for a special time. So what are your general impressions? Like, what were you expecting and, you know, what did you get? I didn't really have any expectations, I don't think. I expected that I had seen them before and, and was surprised to find out that I hadn't. Like, I definitely had seen clips of them and I took an apocalypse class in college, so I had seen some of it there. But I thought they were great. The, the production design and stuff gets progressively better over the three films, uh, which I really appreciated. The costuming, too. I had a hard time in, like, the first movie that everyone looked the same and I couldn't tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys because they were all just wearing black leather, and I found that confusing. Yeah, partially, I think, intentional, too, to blur that line mm -hmm. there of justice yeah. and vengeance. Yeah, so it kind of felt like they just kept trying harder the next time, which was interesting. But I really liked them a lot. Cool. That's great to hear. Like, as a first-timer, seeing these sort of older movies from the 80s and knowing that in this day and age they hold up for you, that's really cool. I like to hear that. Late night, Brian. <laughs> I was like, what? I forgot that was my nickname. <laughs> so what about you and Mad Max? How did you first meet him? Strangely, almost the same thing. I don't know which of these movies I've seen. Like, it's just, they've been like downloaded into my brain, but I couldn't tell you which was which until I just also, I saw all four in the last couple of days just to keep in check. How I was introduced to this franchise in a weird way, and I kind of brought up my love for wrestling on a previous Third Time's a Charm, the Rocky Three episode 80s wrestling really 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 ripped off mad max a lot the steel cage match not just that yes but there was actually a team called the road warriors oh yeah i love those guys um hawk 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 and animal hawk and yeah. animal yeah and they wore the shoulder pads <laughs> and the face paint yep and they look almost exactly like i don't remember his name but like one of the villains from the mad max 2 i mean you know it's the stylized nature of the film and the stylized nature of wrestling there's also another team called Demolition from the 80s who look exactly like, again, I don't remember his name, but the main, main bad guy in Mad Max 2. The one who refers himself as the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla. Oh, yeah. Lord Humongous. Which I thought another wrestler, Chris Jericho, invented for himself. But apparently it's from this movie as well. So that was kind of my first introduction to Mad Max. And also a teacher of mine was explaining Mad Max to us in science class in eighth grade. And was kind of like fascinated and was so tempted to rent this film, Beyond the Thunderdome. But I was kind of embarrassed by the poster because it, that Tina Turner image was like intimidating to me as a kid. <laughs> and now I love it. And I thought, I thought the clerk would make fun of me at Blockbuster. Oh, come on. Really? 
for renting a Mad Max movie? I didn't know anything about Mad Max, you know, like except from what the teacher told me. Okay, granted. And then over the years, I think I've just been like catching it on TV, but watching the series entirely now, awesome. I mean, I, I can share my opinions throughout, but to me, it's just so cool. They've built something, or I should say George Miller built something that's similar to James Bond in a way, or uh, probably better, but where you could have interchangeable stories. They're not like dependent on the last film. Right. The first Mad Max is kind of like a prequel, if anything, you know? Like, it feels more like a prequel. And that's why I'm going to... I'm not calling bullshit on you, Mike Manzi, because I like you, but this is a third film of a series, but to a lot of American audiences... Like, I know, Mike, my uncle's another person who talked about Mad Max a lot. My uncle had no idea that there was, like, a first Mad Max and thought the Road Warrior was, like, the first one. So this was always kind of... Even though it's called Mad Max 3, this was always kind of like a sequel to him. Well, your uncle's not alone because the way that I discovered this series was backwards. This is rated PG-13 and, you know, there's a lot of kids in this and it's more child-friendly than the other two by a long shot. I mean, in the first movie, Max's own child gets run over, you know, like... Yeah, I can't believe they did that. It's kind of X-rated, the violence in the first two movies. And in this movie, they pull way back because there's just a larger audience at this point. But yeah, you know, this is much more of like folklore or mythology, the Mad Max series. Like, almost aside from that first one, I feel like two, three, and four are sort of like interchangeable a little bit within the timeline. But technically, this is called Mad Max 3 in Australia, where it originates. So only in America, like, or outside in other regions, like you said, Brian, like the first movie was released in America, but it bombed. Like, it just, there was no way to market it, I guess. I don't know how. They should have, it could have been a drive-in sensation because of like the car craze movies and everything like that coming out of the 70s. But it failed. It just didn't get recognized. So with the second one, they didn't even call it Mad Max 2. They just called it The Road Warrior. And I feel like a lot of people came into the series not knowing that there was a first movie. And I did not know there was a first movie for a long time. I didn't even see that movie, I don't even think, until like after high school, to be quite honest. Like I knew it was out there somewhere, but I had just watched The Road Warrior the most. Like I was just really into that movie a lot as a teenager. But this movie is just fantastic. I'm glad we're all into this series. There's really just nothing quite like it. It's very unique and it's very strange that something so extreme managed to stay to its roots. Like, I think one reason why we all kind of feel like we're not sure what part goes with which movie, there's a lot of interchangeable parts in this series. Like, there's a lot of repetition, there's a lot of similar elements and callbacks and pieces being rearranged throughout the series. And that keeps going into part four, too. It's really cool like that. And I feel like that's like Bond in a way. And you can constantly keep recasting Max like they're doing and keep it going for a really long time. Yeah, and I love the fact that Mad Max in the first one, yeah, he's like the main character, but the next three, yes, he's the main guy, but he's he's like a part of someone else's legend, you know? He's like this guy who comes in, this guy who comes out, and he's really he really just becomes a part of other people's stories which is awesome. Which I think really borrows from like the tradition of Westerns. And there's like a lot of elements of Western filmmaking in all three of the movies, but I think especially the second and third ones. Yeah, I I definitely picked up on that. I definitely agree with you. I I love in in this one, like Barter Town certainly just feels like Mm -hmm. Deadwood or something, you know? And it's just interesting how it's the future, but it's basically people living in the past. But yeah, as much as like part two and three, feel like westerns and they're post-apocalyptic like what amazed me what like i thought was really crazy when i was doing a little research for this is that george miller was like a 
emergency room medic and like saw you know crazy car crashes and there's like a bunch of crazy car movies from australia like crazy ozploitation films of just crazy movies uh, at the time i mean really just extreme stunt work and i heard rumors of like in the first mad max they used real biker gangs and paid everybody with like alcohol and stuff like they're really running and gunning with that but it's just really cool how all these elements can cater to different genres and i feel like all three movies feel connected but different too like they just keep expanding this one really opens up the universe yeah for sure and tina turner which by the way i found my halloween costume for this year nice (laughs) are you gonna shave your head like tina turner i might who knows we'll see go for it commitment you could get the wig that's like the classic fright wig that they sell at halloween shops yeah but her like her widow's peak in this hairstyle is so extreme that they did wind up having to shave her head for that specific wig oh interesting yeah which is awesome since Brian's here, I wanted in his honor to read the back of the DVD box before we started talking about the movie, if you don't mind, Brian. Wow, in my honor. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't want to just say I'm stealing your bit or anything because I'm not going to do this every episode, but you're here and it's Mad Max and I kind of want to get a little bit of plot out of the way before we start talking about the movie. Gotcha. Well, it's not like me reading the back of a DVD is any bit creative or inspired so that's okay and i also did d3 the mighty Ducks, so that was your bit so we're we're even now well on your show from time to time at least or the episodes that i've listened to you read the back of vhs boxes the cover to get a gist of the summary or of the plot and also you know i can't blame you but one time you read a novelization of a part three on your show so here's the back of beyond thunderdome two men enter one man leaves that's the law in bartertown's thunderdome arena but lawmaker auntie entity will soon add another don't get max mad mad max beyond thunderdome stars mel gibson lethal weapon and maverick those are the references <laughs> for his third go around as the title hero who takes on the barbarians of the post-nuclear future and this time becomes the savior of a tribe of lost children music superstar tina turner steals what's left of the screen as auntie entity a power mad dominatrix determined to use max to tighten her stranglehold on barter town that, that's a interesting characterization <laughs> We'll get there. Directors George Miller and George Ogilvie deliver another rousing final apocalypse on wheels and one of the best movie fight scenes ever as Max and the gladiatorial blaster face off with maces, chainsaws, and anything not nailed down inside Thunderdome. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Watch and you'll agree with the soundtrack song, We Don't Need Another Hero. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it totally takes, like, one of the strongest characters of the series and mischaracterizes her in, like, one line as a power mad dominatrix <laughs> silly silly let's take it from the top this movie starts with a pretty amazing shot if you ask me did that shot make an impression on either of you apparently not i literally was like what shot are you talking about that's what i was thinking in my head it's oh man i was like the very opening shot of this movie is a super wide angle lens and it just looks like the earth basically and it's just a desert and it zooms in or it flies in to max on his he's like riding his busted car with the camels and it turns out to be the airplane point of view and mike have you listened to my show yes have you ever heard me talk about shot work in a film 
Very rarely. But this is my show, and we do talk about shots. And this was the first shot of the... Next time I'm on your show, if I'm invited on again, I'll take notes on this. But it, it was it was beautiful. <laughs> it's okay, but I just thought it was the very first shot of the movie, and it was incredibly striking, and it, and it just got me into the mood instantly. But I guess to each their own. <laughs> I got distracted because the opening credits, there's a character called Dr. Dealgood. And I was like, wow, I wonder, you know, I had to like look up what year did Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood come out and like see, you know, if there was a influence there, which in my research, I came across the fact that Nikki Six actually credits Mad Max very heavily with his whole aesthetic. So yeah, so I was too busy looking up Motley Crue. <laughs> I'll rewind a little bit. Let me hit rewind. Let's talk about the opening title song, a Tina Turner, but not the song I was expecting. They saved that for the end. What do y'all think of this opening song? I mean, I don't remember it that much because I'm so obsessed now with the song from the end. But again, Tina Turner has such an amazing voice. She does. She's amazing. It centered me. It was like, I'm ready for this. But you know what? Opening shot and all, okay, fine. It was beautiful. But you know what took me out of it? I had just watched Mad Max 2, and I put in Mad Max 3, and the dude in, like, the gyrocopter in Mad Max 2 is playing a pilot in Mad Max 3, and I'm like, is that the same person? I totally thought it was the same character. It's the same actor, but not the same character. Right. It's Bruce Spence. Which is very confusing. Yeah, no, and that's what the series does, though. I mean, the guy who plays Toe Cutter in the first movie will come back in part four and play a major character, too, but he's not the same character. He's just the same actor. Yeah, that is a little jarring, I suppose, because I also thought that his son was the feral kid from part two, even though (laughs) he talks about growing up to lead a tribe and all that kind of stuff, but still, it didn't matter. It's just, that's fine. I guess it is a little confusing, but what's nice about it is that it kind of makes this movie self-contained. You don't really have to have seen any other Mad Max movie. You can just start anywhere with this series. I think if I didn't see them back-to-back right away, I wouldn't have cared. And I don't care, but you just asked me that my first impressions, and that was my first impression. Like, oh, is this the same guy? Well, apparently they said to the guy when they offered him the part, quote, not the gyro captain, but kind of like the gyro captain. <laughs> The second thing I thought of, like, first impressions on the film, was Mel Gibson's hair change in this one compared to the last one. It's much longer. Caveman Max? Yes, much longer. Yeah, he's really leaning into his... I don't know if you guys know his character's last name, but he's really leaning into it in this. His last name is Rockatansky. He's rocking a tan, and he's rocking that caveman look pretty hard. Like, he looks... Like, he stepped out, you know, of the Flintstones, almost. Yeah. It's funny because, like, to me it was so different from, like, again, I saw them all in a row. So seeing Mel Gibson in Mad Max 1 as, like, a baby face, they really did a good job, like, aging him, I think. Yeah, they gave him the gray temples. Even when he gets his hair cut halfway through the movie, like, he's got the gray Mr. Fantastic temples on the side of his head and a couple scars and stuff. And I don't know if you noticed in this movie, but I think it's only in some of the scenes. Actually, Max in this movie has um, two different colors eyes he didn't have that in the other movies so somewhere along the line like he's just gaining injuries you know and i thought that was kind of cool well i read in the trivia that like i think george miller wanted to do that because he does get an eye injury in mad max 2 because he gets shot in the leg in the first movie that carries over all the way and so it's kind of nice 
that's the continuity I like, you know. Right, yeah, it's all just surrounding Max. Like, Max is the only character that appears in all the stories and stuff. Like, it isn't really, like you said, Brian, earlier, like, it isn't, like, entirely about him. He's not the main character, but it is his legend. So it's really cool how throughout it, people and other facts about his story change all the time, but he doesn't. His legend keeps growing. Like, they just keep adding on the facts about him and get getting those right. As long as we can tell the tell about Max correctly, all the other little details can be fuzzy. Yeah, no, for sure. So Bruce Spence steals Max's camels, and Max is forced to go to Barter Town because that's where he follows Bruce Spence too. That's where he's going to take all of his shit and sell it, including his pet monkey. What did you guys think about Max having a pet monkey this time instead of a pet dog? Yeah, they killed the dog. In Mad Max too. Yeah, it was a very sad moment for me because that was a very cute dog. I like the dog better, but hey, I mean, I'm not going to complain about a monkey. I thought it was an interesting choice. I mean, definitely right off the bat, they're trying to go for the more sort of like childlike stuff. You know, they're trying to like capture the attention of the younger people in the audience. No, I think the monkey's definitely an, an appeal to the younger audience. But it didn't, honestly, like, I know it's PG-13, but it didn't feel like they were completely dumbing it down, where I, it was unenjoyable because it was just for children. Like, I, you know, like, I, I was still satisfied. Most of the reason why it's not an R rating is because of the lack of violence. Like, there's violence in it, but there's no blood and gore to the extent that there was in the previous films. And ultimately, at the end, like, the kids get away for the most part, free and clear. I think they even might have, according to the book, they cut out one of the kids' death scenes in this movie. So I think they're even trying to cut it down more to be like, especially towards the end as it's wrapping up, more kid-friendly and just like more of like a, an adventure. Gotcha. Because the one kid dies, right? The one who falls in the sand? Yeah. One, one gets trapped in the sand. So Barter Town. What do you guys have to trade to get into Barter Town tonight? I don't know. Nothing? No? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I should have prepped better about my like character and stuff. I should have built a backstory about late night. So this is the first time in the series that we see some kind of city, like a civilization. Like, even in the first movie, it's like a very desolate countryside. Like, there's little shops here and there and stuff, but nothing really resembling, like, a town or a city that we see. It's, like, pretty empty already. And then in the second one, clearly, we have, like, the little camp where they're pumping the gas and stuff. But this is the first time where we're getting, like, lots of freaks walking around, and it's really cool. And it's some crazy Planet of the Apes banging music going on in the background, and it's just really selling this, like, post-apocalypse for me. How did you guys feel about Bada Town? Yeah, it's the first time you kind of see, like, a capitalist-ish economy, you know? I know it's, like, bartering, whatever, but it's the first time there seems to be... Like, because the other town in Mad Max 2, that's, like, more of, like, a community. More of, like, a... Like a commune, yeah. Yeah, like a commune. Like, in that kind of way, like, everyone has roles. And Barter Town's a little bit more uh, lawless. I don't know, it was cool. Like you said, it was, like, the whole Wild West element and Tina Turner runs it. I'm going to keep going back to Tina Turner, but I don't care, but it's awesome. I find it really interesting that there is this society in Barter Town, and then there's like kind of a second layer of society run by Master Blaster, and then there's the third society of the kids. And it's it's not lost on me that the three people that are leading these communities are, you know, some of the most marginalized people in our societies. A black woman 
to people with disabilities and a teenage girl. I found that really interesting that the people in charge are, it kind of cuts both ways. The people in charge are the least likely to be in charge kind of in the real world. And then at the same time, it's like you could put a more negative spin on it and say like in science fiction, the only reason that these people are in charge is because it's completely unlikely that that would happen in the real world. So we're going to put it in science fiction, but it's interesting. Right, like the idea of Tina Turner being in charge is science fiction, right? Like, right. I hate that, yeah. But, right. Which it, it should not be. I would vote for Tina Turner any day. <laughs> but I do really like like the relation between the three societies, like the way that Bartertown and Underworld like live off each other, and then the way that the children are sort of like isolated and stuff. But then also just like the kids have like, they sit down and they do the tell at night and they seem like, more sort of peaceful and it's like all like very Garden of Eden type stuff and then Barter Town is like much more of like a hellscape and you know they've got like these very arcane rules and then you can even go underground and like there's this big demon guy walking around that looks like Juggernaut with like a furnace on his head it's just like really crazy imagery being contrast here and everything and it's just I love that's what I love about it I think like a complaint that I've heard a lot about this movie is that we leave Barter Town too soon and this whole like side quest with the children happen but i think that's the whole point of the movie is to see the differences of how the adults are acting and how the children are acting after this apocalypse and like how these two different societies are functioning separately and like how that's problematic too yeah that's interesting yeah no that that's a cool that's definitely a cool take i didn't think we left barter town too early i mean we still get Tina Turner. It's not like we leave her. Well, I just, I wanted more Thunderdome. I wanted more people in goofy fights on bungee cords. That was really fun. Well, yes. I mean, for this movie, it's called Beyond the Thunderdome, but Thunderdome's in the title, and we only get that one scene. Yeah. That's fair. And I thought there was more Thunderdome. I didn't realize it was just one Thunderdome battle. So I'll agree with that one, but the whole world's a Thunderdome in Mad Max. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. I definitely was expecting them to go back into the dome towards the end of the movie at some point, but that never happened. I mean, the first time I watched it, that's what I was expecting. I mean, it sounds cooler beyond Thunderdome than beyond Bartertown, but the Thunderdome is one very small element of Bartertown. But it is sort of what they base their society around, you know, is like the idea of, you know, you can't just go around killing each other. Like, there has to be some type of order or rule to this. And so anytime someone threatens another person's life, they have to, like, settle it in the ring. You know, there's, like, some some kind of justice or something going on. They're, they're trying to create a type of law, but it's, like, you know, it's based on entertainment. So it's never going to be just in the end by any means. Because it's, like, reality television for them, ultimately, in the future. That's all they got left. <laughs> the Thunderdome is reality television. Yeah. You know what I didn't remember from, like, clips of this Thunderdome thing? That they were, like, bungeed in, like, a Cirque du Soleil kind of way. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that, and it was amazing. <laughs> Recently on Wistful Thinking, I've been trying to make Jordan, because Jordan, my co-host, is a circus athlete, so I've been asking her to, like, turn the things that we watch into circus shows, and I feel like Beyond the Thunderdome is, like, prime for some sort of circus show adaptation. Oh, definitely, and I think when you see the next movie, even more so. Oh, yeah? That is exciting. So much more, like, theatrical elements, and there's let's just say the bungee cord comes back in a certain way and it does not disappoint nice 
Let's get to the reason why Max ends up in Thunderdome. He doesn't have anything to barter with in Barter Town, but the guards kind of sense like he's a warrior, like he's a badass because he's like, I'm a badass, get out of my way. And he looks tough as hell. So they bring him to who at the time I think runs like everything up top of the crow's nest. Basically, she lives high perched atop like the entire town so she can survey her kingdom is we're finally getting to her none other than auntie entity herself tina turner i mean i signed up for this movie because of tina turner and it's just so many i'm getting so many tina turner coincidences in my life like i didn't think we were going to do this movie for a while and then you you call on us and literally i just finished watching what's love got to do with it the tina turner story and oh, i just love this character so freaking good and it was crazy because, like, maybe a couple days later, I was at my mom's and she has some, like, old MTV channel that I don't get. And they played video to this song. And I was just like, it's so meant to be. And I think I told you guys, but I bought this soundtrack on vinyl. I cannot get this song out of my head. Just, she's just so awesome and badass. And she has her own saxophone player. It's great. Yeah, what's crazy about that saxophone player is that Max's wife played saxophone. So, like, when he comes up that little elevator thing, there's, like, a look on his face where he's like, what the hell? Like, what? 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 Like, it feels like he's having sort of, like, a flashback or something, and then the guy turns around and it's like a creepy blind dude playing the saxophone. I was waiting for him to start uh, playing Careless Whisper, like, (laughs) I'm a little bit disappointed that it didn't go there, but it's fine. It's funny that in the Mad Max world, it doesn't seem like, and I, you know, I understand why for like movie making and copyright reasons, but it doesn't seem like too much pop culture has survived. Well, I, it's like I was saying a little bit before, like Thunderdome feels like wrestling, like WWF or, you know, like, like a show, like doing vaudeville or whatever. But like, it feels like it survived in that way that like, this is a society that was raised on like media and TV and, you know, movies and stuff. But like, now that it's all gone, they have to like make it up themselves and make up new games and shows and references and things. Because I'll, I definitely feel like two men enter, one man leave is like, definitely like something catchphrase or, you know, a tagline that would in you know like a game show or something right so like i get the sense that while they're not directly referencing popular culture it was a society that was sort of like built on it yeah and i I take that back because i think in one of the films there's like a bugs bunny someone like a kid has a bugs bunny thing this one in this movie yeah like the witch doctor the like one who looks like a war boy true and and also like max's exile mask is like obviously from the past that wasn't currently made in barter town so i do take that back i also think that like since this movie has been made there's been like so much kind of post-apocalyptic fiction that we've seen that does feature you know vestiges of the former society i'm thinking about like how denzel washington has an ipod in book of eli he does i haven't seen that yet whoa yes Oh my god, it's absurd. Or even we recently watched The Road for Watch the Throne. And there's just like so much product placement. And I just, I, we see that so much more in the films that have been made since this, you know, that draw heavily on this, but kind of predates that sort of let's shove as much product placement as possible. So when he's up there in like Entity's Perch, by the way, they only call her Auntie or Auntie in this movie. You never really find out, except in the credits, that her name is Auntie 
the entity, which is a powerful name. Like, she is the entity. She is the end all. Well, not quite, because we find out that this is like an audition of types because they need her to take out like the other like half of the town. But this part, his like sort of audition to see how badass Max is, it brings up something in this movie that I wasn't expecting and did not remember and is really in full force in the book. But the comedy aspect in this movie, like it gets full on slapstick at times Mm -hmm. and like Looney Tunes. And it's funny, there is a Bugs Bunny in this movie. So it's funny, like I feel like they're drawing from Looney Tunes at points. Oh, for sure. And it's just like here where Max, like, you know, he knocks the guy in the neck and the guy falls backwards onto the thing and it falls in the air and the other guy's like, huh? And like, I don't know. It just happens like several times throughout this movie. There are like these Rube Goldberg-esque fight sequences where there's like <laughs> chain reactions happening across the screen and stuff. And and I really like that. That's something that was missing from, from the first two movies. Those movies are just like kind of... They're not concerned with, like, laughter or anything like that, you know? Like, I think there's a certain irony to a lot of it. Like, there's you can laugh at how crazy they are to a degree and stuff, but there's no, like, jokes or anything and pratfalls and stuff like that to this degree. How did you guys feel about, like, the comedy? I always want more slapstick. They could have used even more of it. I mean, it was fun. You know, when we talk more about, like, the Thunderdome and stuff, the way they get sort of tangled up in their wires and, you know, all that kind of thing, kind of look ridiculous flailing around on those bungee cords every once in a while, like, as cool as it is, so. Yeah. I mean, that's why I enjoyed that scene so much is because these, like, these are not professionals who are like used to this sort of like rigging you know it's just it's very (laughs) natural of like how somebody might use their body when they're like strung up on these bungee cords and trying to fight somebody it's like totally like literally knocks you off your feet you know what i mean so i found that like a really fun kind of device for that fight to take place inside of it almost reminds me if you guys remember american gladiators oh very much so yeah (laughs) Yeah, like, I'm kind of surprised that, not that they would do it to the death, but that Thunderdome isn't some kind of UFC thing at this point in American history or something. Well, actually, when I was researching Waterworld, I came across this thing called Wasteland Weekend, which is apparently, like, Burning Man for people who are really into, like, post-apocalyptic stuff. It's really quite something. There's actually a documentary on Amazon that I watched about it last night. I don't remember remember what it's called, but you, you can Google it. Just open the gate and let's begin Wasteland Weekend This is my first Wasteland, and it will not be the last. I, I love it. I have a profound appreciation for the ridiculous, and being able to come out here and just go balls to the wall is amazing. I feel like everyone is letting out a piece of themselves that they don't anywhere else, and uh, I love it. But I know mom's proud of me. Hi, mom. In addition to people like building these like apocalypse cars and having this like whole PA vehicle, that's what they call them, competition to see like who built the best car and shit, they also have these like Thunderdome fights. But well, they have fights both in the and out of the Thunderdome. So you see them having these fights on the bungee cords, and then there's like non-bungee fights. But they have those like giant cotton swab things that American Gladiator used to use. So. It's a thing, but it's a thing out in the middle of the desert that is not televised. So mm. I just think it's funny that it's like Wasteland Weekend for fans of post-apocalyptic things just for the weekend. 
you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although it seems like we were talking about this last night while we were watching it. Like, we wish that we could be this enthusiastic about, like, literally anything. Because the people that are into this are so into it that they spend one weekend a year doing this and the 51 other weekends of their year planning for it. <laughs> Literal weekend warriors. Yeah, the pre-apocalypse takes up a lot of your time, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of people, like one guy is props supervisor for film production, so he had like a bunch of like guns and shit. Oh, he bought a bus off of Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> And converted that. Like others are mechanics who like you know build cars and stuff. It was really interesting. But the, there are these vehicles that are outfitted with all of these weapons, and I was just like, imagine if a person of color had this sitting in front of their house. Like they would have been arrested, <laughs> like so early into the process, and yet these like insane white guys can totally get away with building these ridiculous vehicles, which are cool i'll give them that but it just was quite striking to me that they can work on this in in, in their front yard in their driveway with no one bugging them <laughs> they have real guns on them they're like replicas mostly but you know I, I mean if that yeah if i lived next door to that they would definitely at least get a visit from the cops once you know like <laughs> things once. out yeah. like what's going on here <laughs> is this real is it not well the guy with the jimmy buffett bus that's full of replica weapons said that he got pulled over once and a cop walked onto the bus and then was like, uh, you know what? Just go. I'm going <laughs> to pretend I didn't see this. I do not. I do not want to deal with the paperwork that this would involve. Like, please just drive away. Jeez. Yeah. So. Kind of scary. Yeah. Back to your slapstick thing, though, Mike. I do like that because... I need that in my post-apocalyptic films. Or then they become, no offense, like Waterworld or The Postman. Hey, Waterworld is a masterpiece. <laughs> I haven't seen Waterworld since the 90s, so if it is a masterpiece, I apologize. I mean, it's not good, but I enjoy it a lot. I don't like to slog through slow post-apocalyptic things. It helps the pace for me, if that makes sense. None of these movies are particularly long, right? No, I was actually surprised about how short this was upon this watching. I was like, whoa, it's under two hours? You know, not that it's a bad thing in this case, but I feel like it's longer than two hours at parts. I was very surprised that it was only like an hour and 40-something minutes. Even the newest one's only like two hours flat, right? Yeah, it's two on the nose, right? Which I always admire that, like the ability to not go through three hours and this one says so much in it too like they do so much like they expand this universe so much in this one movie i was shocked watching it the first time just finding out that there's the whole underworld thing like i was like oh tina turner's not it this is the coolest thing ever but like we're gonna get more okay and then we get master blaster which just like boggled my mind as a kid like i just i don't know if my if i could understand what i was like watching you know what i'm saying like it was just so extreme for what I was used to that I could not compute as a kid. Now I think it's one of like the coolest ideas, just the concept of them being like this unit, this little man on top as the brains, and then this giant hulking man on the bottom as like the body. Like I just think it's insane, basically, which most of the best ideas in, in Mad Max are, and that's why it's so cool. Oh yeah, it, it's very cool. And the whole pig methane thing is awesome. Real pigs? 
as well. Yeah, real pigs. Yeah, just the visual of seeing all those pigs is, I mean, I don't know the word for it, but it's just obviously in the newest Mad Max, George Miller was praised for not using a lot of CGI or at all, right? Uh, So many people today would have CGI'd a lot of pigs. It might have been in the trivia or just me reading the IMDb of, you know, George Miller. It was like the guy behind the Babe series. Yep. He directed Babe, Pig in the City. Yeah. I'm still waiting on Babe 3. So come on, guys. Yeah, we got to get Babe 3. Babe Beyond the Thunderdome. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. Someone needs to draw that poster. I'm on it. In the second one, Babe gets like a spiked collar and a mohawk tuft and everything. Like he goes a little oh, road warrior. <laughs> Does he? Uh, I a don't. little bit. It's adorable. <laughs> so you really, really are waiting for Babe 3 beyond the Thunderdome. Oh, I know. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, Babe 1 and 2 are great movies. Miller only directed the second one, but, but he produced the first one. And yeah, they're terrific. Yeah, he's like the main guy behind the whole thing. He just didn't want to direct it. Happy Feet, on the other hand, kind of frightened me. I got a couple nightmares from that movie, so I can't really give him points for that, but he was involved there. He made Happy Feet? Yeah, he directed that as well. Wow. What range? (laughs) Honestly, and the guy's still going. He's like pushing 80, and he's still going. They need to make another Mad Max. I know we should save that for the end, but like, isn't he in like litigation or something? Like, That's what I heard, but I haven't heard anything for like a year or read anything for like a year about it, but he's ready to go with like multiple scripts just as soon as they can. But he's always been ready to go with multiple scripts. Like, he's always been trying to find finance and, you know, backers and distributors and stuff. And, like, if you go listen to the Watch the Throne podcast that we're doing right now where we're talking about Fury Road, like, I'm sure we're going to mention, like, all the starting and stopping of the production of that before, like, even trying to get it going in the first place and everything. So I always feel like he's a, a phone call away from making another one, but no one's really waiting by that phone. You know, he's off trying to do other stuff. <laughs> Where were we, pigs? Yeah, Underworld, Master Blaster, Max picking a fight on Saturday night, which there's so much. There's an entire chapter in the book called Saturday Night, and apparently this is the third Saturday night this week that Master Blaster has thrown because he's in such a good mood. And (laughs) the reason why he's really excited tonight is because the car that he's driving in on is Max's car, and it's like he's so happy that he's got this new car that he calls a Saturday night on everybody. But that gives Max the opportunity to challenge him, and we make it to Thunderdome. Is that the same car? Yes. Okay. And it shows up again at the very end. That's the same car when they're about to take off on the plane, and the one kid comes driving up in it. Like, he jumps off the train onto the car, and it turns out to be Max's car. Uh, I don't know if it's clear in the movie, but in the book, it's like Max drives his own car again, finally, like at the end of the story. Hmm, that's cool. All right, Thunderdome, right? So, yeah, so it starts with Dr. Dealgood coming in and giving his whole speech. And this is what I was talking about. This is this feels like the adult version of the tell where they're like, before we used to kill each other, but now we settle it in the ring one on one. And only one of us has to die instead of all of us again, you know, <laughs> instead of a whole other war. It's very old world, sort of like eye for an eye kind of stuff, I feel. Yeah. I mean, that dude's awesome. How does he stay so clean out there, though? It's he, it's part of his presentation, you know. He take he takes his job very very seriously. I can understand Tina Turner, right? Because she's got like all the goods, like she runs the place. But Doctor Dealgood's like out there, you know, hawking camels and horses and things all day long in the sand, and yet he comes down there, you know, Saturday night, looking squeaky clean. It's great. He's a rich dude. I mean, he 
probably on the top levels of that society, gets to be clean all the time. And Okay, I don't know if you got to look good for that role, but he looks good in that role, and he looks clean and unsanded, which is... It's, it's presentation, man. It's the show business. He reminds me of Jimmy Hart, The Mouth of the South. Nice. This is a wrestling-filled show again. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, these are wrestling elements here. Two men enter, one man leave, but there are no rules. But then Max wouldn't have to kill the guy. I mean, it's so it's a little fuzzy. No, but that's the rule. Like that's why it's a stupid thing to say because that's the rule. Like you have to kill somebody. Yeah. Also, I'm sure there's some general, just general, maybe not rules, but handshake, wink, wink things that you can't necessarily do. They have the weapons hanging up top, which is a really cool thing. It doesn't seem like you can bring your own weapons, or can you? Well, Max brings his whistle. Yeah, he has the whistle, so that's true. And that is his secret weapon. But could you bring in a gun and just shoot the guy? I guess if you hit it, you know, like you can't go in there brandishing like a shotgun or anything. But if you hid like a pistol in your back pocket, but then you can't bring weapons into Barter Town. That's another hilarious moment up top where like Max just keeps taking out guns from his jacket. It's like, here's another gun. And then here's one in my sock. And then, oh, I've got a crossbow. And like, it just keeps going on and on. So I guess those are the only weapons around. And the whistle, you know, he kept it hidden. That's classic. You know, the weapon thing is classic, like Wild West movie. So love to see that. Love the chainsaw. That was great. What weapons would you have liked to see in the Thunderdome as a patron of Thunderdome sports? I don't know. I don't know enough about weapons. (laughs) You watched a whole frickin' documentary on apocalypse weapons. You must have seen something cool there. No, they were focused more on the cars than the weapons. The weapons are just accoutrement. (laughs) arrows seem to be big. I've been making notes when I watch post-apocalyptic kind of stuff of like, what are the skills I'm going to need when this eventually happens? (laughs) And making arrows and learning to shoot them is one of those. Definitely after seeing Hunger Games, like... But even the Mad Max movies, there's a lot of arrows. The Mohawk guy in the second movie has that cool arm thing with the arrows or even in the road the father gets shot by an arrow and then dies of septic shock because of it (laughs) that's right so so arrows maybe some sort of what are those slingshots Ooh, that would have been cool yeah you need those long-range weapons right yeah like so you could be across the dome and shoot at him but also maybe a mace those are cool. They have a giant hammer inside this Thunderdome. I just thought that was, again, Looney Tunes, you know, like a big mallet. Like, you just knock him over the head. And he does three times. He just knocks him over the head with it. I would like to see more net. Oh, a net would be cool. I would get that boomerang that the feral kid had from part two. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be cool. So Australian. While I was watching that scene, I was concerned for all of the people who were, like, standing on the cage. On the sidelines? Yes. Yes. Because, like, if somebody, like, runs through there with a sword, like, you're going to get disemboweled. That seems dangerous. That happens. Does it? It happens, but it's hard to tell because it's PG-13, and it's such a violent sequence in the first place. But, yeah, I believe Max, like, dodges one attack, and a spectator takes, like, a like either a spear or a chainsaw to the mm-hmm. guts and stuff. And, um, and I think he's next to the pilot, and the pilot in the and the pig killer are next to each other and they kind of look at each other like oh shit like (laughs) this is dangerous oh yeah 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 I know who you're talking about yeah (laughs) I think it's almost like not an honor but it's almost like not dying but if you get nicked 
from watching the Thunderdome up close. I think it's something you brag about, like, the next day. Like, I was so close to the match. I lost a pinky or something. Hopefully it's just that. Well, I imagine it's, like, at the Coliseum, right? Like, oh, I was so close. Like, the lion's blood, like, splattered on my wife and stuff. Like, it was amazing, you know? (laughs) And what a thrill to be at Thunderdome and and have a scar to show for it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's true. How big do you think that Thunderdome is? Because I was a little confused about, like, the dimensions. Wow, this is exciting talk. Sometimes it looks smaller than I thought it was. Yeah, and also, I mean, the set itself, they might have had, like, a few different versions of it for different reasons, so that might be why it, like, looks larger or smaller at certain points. I didn't come across any, like, information about that, though, so that might not be true. Yeah, it seems like they may have built, like, a a top section for when he was, like, sort of grabbing on to to the spikes and things, and then maybe just, like, a full-on version of it for when they're doing their ground assault stuff and everything. I mean, it's a really long sequence, I think, you know? Like, I think it's really great. Like, even though we are only in the Thunderdome once, like, they really spend time there and make it cool and show everything that it's about. And I'm really down with it. This time around, I was, like, actually going, like, damn, like, I know Mad Max is known for its car chases and all that kind of thing, and we'll get one at the end of this, but I don't know. Like, Thunderdome's fighting, it's the main attraction of this movie. Like, I think it's better. I'm more excited about Thunderdome and the fight here than the train chase at the end of the movie. I do love the train chase, though. That was very good. This is like a couple movies in one, so I, I like the Thunderdome thing, but the train chase is cool, too, because once I get into the narrative of the kids... I want to see that conclusion, you know? We're getting there because ultimately the way Thunderdome ends is like after Max knocks Blaster over the head with the hilariously large Looney Tunes mallet three times, like a bell, he knocks off the giant helmet thing, the juggernaut helmet. And crazy, again, just blew my mind when I was a kid that Blaster is like this mentally challenged man-child person. That was a major surprise the first time I saw this. What do you guys think about the reveal of Blaster? I have complicated feelings about it. My initial reaction to it was wondering if he was the same actor from the first movie. Because when they're like on the run and they stop off at her aunt's house or something, I don't know, like in the country, she has an adult son with developmental disability. And so I, I was curious if that was the same person. It wasn't, but it does seem kind of like a callback to the first movie, the way that they've done with the pilot and other elements. It's complicated. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) What's tough about it is, on the one hand, you want to say, well, like, Blaster was being taken advantage of by Master. Like, Master was telling this guy what to do, and he didn't know right from wrong and anything like that. But on the other hand... We don't know that. We don't know that, yes. You know, like, there's no reason necessarily to assume that. We do assume that about people with developmental disabilities, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, and I think it's a shortcut the movie's trying to take to get us to think that, like, very quickly on a, like, to turn on a dime and to change our point of view immediately. Mm -hmm. Definitely, these days, it's tough. It could seem more like a cheat or tasteless or something like that. I thought it was the weakest part of the writing there because we're supposed to then like Switch and like Master. But like Master literally says, and I wrote it down, he's got the mind of a child, you know, like asking for mercy. And I'm like, okay, so why do you use him, Master? Like, why do you put him in fights and stuff? It's like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's complicated by the fact that Master is also a disabled person. He's um, a little person. And so to 
a certain extent, it can be read as this character of the Master Blaster can only be complete, like a complete being with like two disabled people equals one being that can compete with somebody who is not disabled, which is problematic at best. But at the same time, these are two characters that are disabled that are played by actually disabled actors, and that doesn't happen very often. So that's actually very significant and important. The guy that plays the master actually was in Freaks, the 1930s classic. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, he was on the table. One of us. One of us. We'll make her one of us. A loving cup. A loving cup. We accept a one of us. We accept a one of us. Gooba gobble. Gooba gobble. We accept her. We accept her. Gooba gobble. Gooba gobble. One of us. One of us. And so it's complicated, but this is an exploitation film, you know, so it's in a genre where like all kinds of people are being exploited. Yeah. So there's that. But it's important to note that like uh, actors with disabilities don't get the same kinds of opportunities that non-disabled actors get. And to the extent that the guy that played the master never made enough money to live off of in film. So he had to run a newspaper stand in Hollywood almost till he died. So he was discovered by John Barrymore. He was in like a bunch of Lon Chaney movies. He was in Freaks. He worked a lot and still wasn't able to support himself. I I think George Miller is onto something, but he's not really sure how to portray it right and correctly. Like, it's a very interesting idea, but it's just not expressed. Yeah, and this is something that comes up a lot, a lot, a lot in science fiction, how characters with disabilities are written and acted and treated. So it's it's like a very, like, we're really only skimming the surface here, but there's there's a very deep well of stuff there. That's definitely... Interesting. How old was this guy when he died? He was 83. Wow. That's really sad that he had to run the newsstand or whatever, because it's like, what what a long yeah. career. Jeez. Sobering. Yeah. Sorry, guys. You stole the thunder from the <laughs> dome. Well, like, ultimately, at the end here, it doesn't matter anyway what's going on with Blaster, because if Max doesn't kill him, he'll have broken a deal. And if you break the deal, you face the wheel. What's this? You think I don't know the law? Wasn't it me who wrote it? And I say that this man has broken the law. Right or wrong? We had a deal. And the law says, bust a deal, face the wheel. Bust a deal and face the wheel. That's going to do it for part one of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Tune in in two weeks on Wednesday, September 19th to hear the exciting conclusion to the film discussion. And join us as we crack open the novelization for Third Time's a Book Club. Don't forget to go to cageclub.me and listen to the Watch the Throne crossover episode of Mad Max Fury Road to hear even more about this great franchise. Before I sign off today, I just want to mention, I think I came up with a pretty cool post-apocalyptic name for Kara. Dr. Greens. I think this fits well because Kara actually works with flowers and plants in real life and has brought her greenery expertise to many a previous podcast episode on the network. That'll do it for this episode of Third Time's a Charm, but until next time, go to cageclub.me for everything the network has to offer. Kara's show Wishful Thinking, Late Night's show High School Slumber Party, 
all the other great content, and also hit up the actual page for this episode and see all the fun supplemental material I post, like trailers, behind-the-scenes video, and much, much more. Check out Cage Club Pod on Twitter, Instagram, write to me, T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, check me out on Facebook, Third Time's a Charm page, and until next time, we don't need another hero.